Hi there. I want to invite you to a super special free live training that I am giving with my friends at QGive on Thursday, July 21st, all about creating a future-proof nonprofit social media strategy. You can register right now for free at www.bit.ly forward slash QGive and Julia. Once again, www.bit.ly forward slash QGive, Q-G-I-V and Julia. You don't want to miss this free webinar. You can also go to the show notes of this episode and click the link to register. You're going to learn all about how to navigate upcoming digital changes, the four pillars of social media management, actionable ways to engage your community and more. See you on July 21st. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Nonprofit Nation podcast. Really thrilled and excited to have you with me today. And my guest, I am thrilled to have Mina Das on the podcast today. Mina is the founder and philanthropy analytics consultant at Namaste Data, and she specializes in designing survey-based research tools and analyzing engagement to help organizations find the strategic value of their data, which is so important. Mina spends her time outside work as a mentor to immigrants and as a pro bono research advisor to small shops. Her two recent favorite projects are working on making data-based research tools more DEIA compliant, that's diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, and designing the second season of her podcast, Being and Unbeing an Immigrant, where she wants to bring together the families of immigrants left behind in the home country. So, Mina, welcome. We finally made this work. <laughs> Thank you so much, Julia, for having the pleasure to be here. I told this before we started recording, I fondly stalk you on LinkedIn. <laughs> and so I know how amazing this podcast is. It's nice to be finally doing it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for those kind words. I'm really excited to dive into good data, how we collect it, and then how we can build inclusive and equitable research and analysis into our programs. And I know that's something you specialize in. So first, let's begin with your story and how you got involved with the work that you're currently doing. Awesome, because that's the part I love most talking about (laughs) my story. And storytelling is so important. Oh, I know, right? So I am a first-generation immigrant here in North America. Um, I'm born, grown up. I have a, I had a wonderful childhood in India. I grew up there. That's where I was introduced to the idea of philanthropy. 
I suppose I was 20, 21, right after my first master's when I started to, you know, along with my tech job, I also had my own school for sexual assault victims and ex-nurse. And I realized that, oh, I like doing this work of helping someone else find meaning, probably. But what I did not know was how do you fund projects? Because all I was doing was you know, getting my pay and getting it to get the school supplies and making sure people join the school and, you know, stick with the program, building the program. So it was a one person show and I was doing it. I realized I don't have enough funding to keep it running. And I realized I want to get more education, get more experience and bring it back to my school. And I moved to the U.S., about six years ago to get more education. That means uh, another master's in specializing in analytics and information systems. From there, I moved to Seattle about a year after, after graduation, started working still in tech, still not in nonprofit yet. And I was three months into that job, I met an accident, lost my teeth, and I couldn't speak for almost three months. It was a little bit of a whole yeah, you know, a little bit of a legal battle, but I couldn't find lawyers. And that's the point I realized that it is so hard to be a first-gen immigrant or an immigrant in a new country when you don't know the legal system, when you don't understand the healthcare system, and you just have to, you know, go through tons of emails and talk through, wait on tons of phone calls. And I realized after I could, I was able to speak that I want to give my weekends on volunteering for immigrant advocacy issues. And since then, it's been about four years, I have been doing that over my weekends. And after starting that work about four years ago, I left my tech job, I moved out of that industry. I was doing some contracting and found a job with nonprofit consulting firm. I started to work with them. It took about four or five amazing years, great organization to work with them. And I realized that, okay, while I'm in this industry, I am starting to look at this data because I was an analyst, look at this data from different angles. And I see that the data is not telling the kind of a story I want to hear. I don't come up on that Excel spreadsheet. I don't research for people who look like me, who talk like me. So I understand the definition of philanthropy is broader than just making sure that you have six-digit gifts. So why is it not showing up in the stories? And that started to bother me. And I moved out of my jobs to get, you know, on this solo independent consulting in about seven, eight months so far. It's been fantastic journey of exploration, asking questions, struggles. So although I say I'm a founder in a in a nonprofit philanthropic analytics consultant, but I, I do say, you know, titles don't matter. What I do is I struggle with data and questions. That's kind of my story. And you spend a lot of time volunteering. I do. I do. I do. I, I was I was just talking to you right before um, we, we got on recording this podcast. When I was growing up in India, I had this little bit of a habit to build, to learn about this data stuff from sources that are not related to data. So I used to sit in like minor classes for journalism, for marketing, for play, different places where I could pick some tangential skills. And the way for me to apply those, because I wasn't a student of those classes, was I used to take random buses in the city. Like India has a big population, lots of people, lots of buses. 
I used to take random buses when I was coming back from the school. I would sit on the buses, talk to different strangers, and you won't believe how many good questions, good answers I could hear and ask and had amazing conversations with people, knowing that maybe I'm not going to meet them again. But I had like these amazing conversations. And that, I think, helped me in taking into perspective all that I was experiencing back there in the country and here now that I'm living here. That is an amazing story. I love that you are looking at data through this lens of it's not just numbers on a spreadsheet. There are stories behind the data that we collect and the data also tells a story. So we'll definitely dive more into that. I want to talk about your LinkedIn newsletter, which I subscribe to. It's called Data Uncollected. And it's a newsletter designed to enable nonprofits to listen, think, reflect, and talk about data we missed and are yet to collect. So tell me who should be reading this newsletter and how you came to create it. Oh, you know, Julie, I have to say first thing, thanks for subscribing to the newsletter. I don't hear that too often, you know, that I subscribe to a newsletter. So that's really nice to hear. So thank you. But to your question, I think, you know, I and, and you, are, you are a consultant too. You make this amazing podcast. I think we too often hear anything that we are creating in terms of new content who is the audience? We, we get that question a lot. We, had, we have to think about it. And when I was creating this newsletter, which is about I would say early January, so it's been 11, 12 weeks so far, I was starting to think too, like, who am I sending out this newsletter to? Who should be my audience? And I struggled with that question a little bit. Like, is it just the nonprofit industry? Is it just the fundraising people? Is it beyond the fundraising people? Because, you know, it's a LinkedIn newsletter and I have connections even from the tech or other industries. It's not just nonprofit. And I think I'm coming to a place where my answer to that question of who should be reading that newsletter is anyone who has a relationship with data. Now, I am working in the nonprofit industry, so I'm I'm more focused towards the people who are in this industry. But that means I feel like everybody, all of us have a relationship with the data. Some of us consume it, some of us collect it, some of us analyze it. But it's None of us here who can say that, okay, I haven't read a single line that says, okay, 45 random, 45% so-and-so, one out of three. Like random stats that we come across in our emails, in our other newsletters, in our posts, in our other avenues. So I'm coming to a place to realize that my audience is anybody who has some exposure to data. Because what I'm talking about here is not any specific algorithm or a data science technique or um, an analytics project, how it could be executed. I mean, I might if I want someday. But at this point, I really want to just talk about the raw data that feeds into those systems, that feeds into AI-based products, and it comes with its own flaws. And I'm, I'm sure you're gonna, we're going to talk about some of those flaws. But I would love to. <laughs> the name Data Uncollected came because we have been so focused on running our programs in a certain way that we have, let's say we collected A, B, and C data points, and now we are feeding it into an algorithm. We forgot to collect point number D, a data point D. So that becomes a data uncollected. That becomes a point that we should have collected. And now the problem with the automated systems is that 
it's going to create these algorithms would take your data point A, B, and C, create some insights, throw at you, turn it into actions, and then you will come to a habit where you'll think, okay, I need to collect better data points A, B, and C so that algorithm can do a better job at it. So we are still forgetting to collect the data point D that was needed to make the bigger picture of the philanthropy that it is. So my aim is to uncover some of those data points that should be collected along the journey, not be too algorithmic driven, and ensuring that the we have is, you know, as bias-free as possible. It's never going to be 100% bias-free. That's just in human nature, but as much as we can. So when I've been reading your work, the words inclusive and equitable research and analytics come up a lot. Do you feel like nonprofits really understand what that means? And can you talk about how you are enabling organizations and empowering them with this research that is deeply grounded in the idea of inclusivity for all? That's a good question. I would say, you know, we can do, and when I say we, like as a nonprofit industry, we can do a better job in understanding or trying to explore the words inclusive and equitable research and analytics. We, we are not there yet. I, I feel like we are, we are doing our job. We are learning, but we are not there yet. We have done the research for so long in a certain way. And it just doesn't go about research. I mean, I'm sure you have talked to other people too, how, you know, some of these practices that we have currently, we have had that for a really long time, but and it was not until the pandemic hit. It was not until there was this awakening of social justice, the need for social justice, that we realized that we need a change. Things as they are are not working out. And I am taking that idea and translating it for analytics and research, which is my love for in the work. So I'm realizing that not every nonprofit is in that space to understand what it means for inclusion and equity in research and analytics. But at the same time, when for your second part of the question, how I'm empowering them is starting to say with some ideas, I, I have done some work in, in the space of saying how it becomes inclusive, how it becomes equitable, but I'm, I never claim that I'm one of the experts in this. I, I start with a place of vulnerability. I start with a place of struggle. I, sh- I share this, that I am exploring, I am struggling, I am learning and that's where from this these ideas are coming. So I'm trying to non I'm trying to make the nonprofits think about these words and explore in their head what does it mean for their own data because it's not going to come out like as a cheat sheet of point A to E and you do these steps and then it becomes inclusive. So what does it mean for you? So I'm helping I, I guess I'm helping them with the self-reflection part right now while I implement some of the ideas I have making inclusion and equitable in the analysis I get to do for the nonprofits. I love that. And I agree that this work is not something you can just check off the to-do list. You know, DEI work should be also baked into everything that we're doing. And I believe, or I think, and I've seen a lot of nonprofits, unfortunately, just kind of put it to the side and think it's its own kind of work and that it doesn't affect things like fundraising and data collection and marketing, but it absolutely does. And the work is never done. And I love that you come at it from a place of vulnerability and a place where you're saying, I'm not perfect and I'm still learning. And as long as we are just examining this and and looking at it and coming at it from with the right intention, 
then things can only move forward. So I appreciate that. And my other question is, you know, a lot of my audience, they are fundraisers or they're responsible for raising money, raising awareness. So what kind of data should we be collecting? What kind of data should we be collecting and how can it make us better at our work? That's another great question. I know I saw this in one of the prep documents. You sent it to me for this podcast. I don't think I have a good answer, but I was while I was reading it. But I would say when I think of the data points that should have been collected, well, we let's let's take a step back. So when you say that you have this audience who are supposed to be raising awareness and raising money, you know, most of our fundraising friends, they are collecting, they do have good data. So when I say that we don't have some, we have some biases in the data, we have some flaws in the data. I don't mean to say that everything we have is bad data. We do have good data. We have enough so that we are taking, you know, what we call quote unquote strategic decisions out of it. We have enough of that. What it is missing in those data points is that I would say feeling of affinity, feeling of flow, understanding a person beyond their capacity. So just giving you an example. I volunteer a lot. I give almost a lot of my hours over the weekends. I've been, I have been giving it for almost like last three years. I'm not a millionaire, but I, ho- I hope I become one so I can you know, make bigger gifts to my organization. But I do make philanthropic gifts of you know, smaller, $100 to $150, just making a point here to give that number. And when it comes to so, some of the nonprofits I'm, I'm attached to, I'm giving one particular example where they had in their uh, newsletter, they had mentioned some of the programs and I was interested in one of them. And I reached out to one of the fundraisers to ask, okay, hey, what does this program entail? What would you need? And I was asking these questions out of curiosity, maybe as a volunteer, maybe as someone who wanted to make a gift at some level. And all that person could respond back was, you know, it's not in your capacity. I don't think you are the right fit for this program. I don't think you will be if be able to afford, and this is this was her sentence, I don't think you will be able to afford this program, making a gift in this program. And I was deeply hurt by that statement, by that, you know, I don't know, it was a, it's a growth assumption of some sorts. I was only asking for questions, but my point is, that assumptions like these, they hurt people. The data that we are dealing with is about people. There are people outside who really care about your mission. There are people outside who want to make the best of what they have and share it with you to make, you know, to make your mission more successful. And so we can do better jobs at capturing the data points about the interests and affinity and the love and understanding people beyond just the capacity numbers. The more the data points we have of those kind, of that kind, the more will we will we be able to remember, and I hope so, that philanthropy is more than the dollars only. Yes. And I've had Claire Axelrad on the podcast. And she talks a lot about that, how philanthropy is more than just fundraising. And she wants to take the word fund out of fundraising (laughs) because she thinks it focuses too much on actual dollars raised and not on the relationships that are being built and the communities that 
are being changed, the problems that are being addressed. So I agree with that. And if I could add, Julia, there one more one more point. It's not just about the data that we collect about our, you know, it seemed, it seemed like where, where how you talked about the DEI stuff. That has to be ingrained in every aspect of the shop. It's not just about, okay, just fundraising, just the donor communication. It's about, it has to be part of everything. It's not an independent entity. It's the same, little bit same with the data points that we want to collect. It's not just about the data points that we need to collect about our donors, our volunteers, or the people who are engaging with our mission. We have to keep that lens of inclusion in everything where, and I'm going to restrict myself to talk about research and analytics, in everything where data is involved. So giving you another example is how do you measure the success of a fundraiser? It's not cannot be just about how many dollars that person raised. That's going to create, you know, imbalance in generally mental health, obviously. And of course, on a unclear expectations, that would obviously lead back to only collecting data points more around capacity, more around, okay, who are the biggest foundation, biggest charities, biggest donors in the city, in the local area. So I feel like to really you know, capture these uncollected data points, we have to look at from different lens. So you have to just not look at from, okay, what are we collecting for the donors? We have to look at also from how are you measuring success? How are you measuring the growth of your employees, of your staff members? So it relates back to really looking at what we said, that the data is about people. The actions from it also should reflect that the data is about people. It's not just about the money. Absolutely. And we need to center community in the data and research. And I know you wrote a blog post about this. So what are some ways that we can center community? And also, what does that mean? And then how can we do our best to include and center community in our data and research? Well, I would say definitely read the blog post. (laughs) Right. I will link to it in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for doing that. You know, when I was writing that article and still, I think I wrote that about a month or two and still I feel like we can do a better job at centering community. And when I use those words, what I mean is a lot of the analysis that I, I have been a prospect researcher, I have been a manager of prospect researchers. A lot of the work that went into my work was focused around campaigns, was focused around donors and and it's it's not in a bad way i mean you know we are we have short stuff we are short staffed as nonprofits we have lack of resources we are have these to-do lists we have these priorities like like i said if we have to think about data collected it has to come from all different angles it's not just about what can prospect researcher do to collect more data it's coming from different angles so when i talk about centering community what i am trying to say to the nonprofit world is Think about the people who are going to be impacted by your work and center your analysis, whatever you are doing, whether it's engagement analysis, whether it's finding out who would be a better person for hosting the next events. It's not going to be just the people who are who have the most connections in the city, but how can you center the people who are going to be impacted by your work and center them because they are your why. They are the reason you started to work this, whatever you are doing. How can you center that in your nonprofits? And that is what I mean by centering community. And it takes different shapes of form. I, I 
honestly, I don't exactly remember all the points that I mentioned in my article. And thanks to, thanks to you that you're sure. Where can we start? Maybe just where can we start? Yeah, I, w- I would say, you know, for a really tangible example would be you do surveys in your nonprofits. If and you must, if you're not doing it, then probably that's a different discussion. We should do a survey like a, on, a, on a regular cadence. And if you are doing it, don't include just your top donors or donors above a certain level to your surveys. You can include your donors, your volunteers, you know, the people who have your mission in their meetup groups. Or, and and there you can track those people and you can have all of those in your database and send them out a survey to hear from them. So you are creating a space for all the people, all of them who are interested in your work not just your top donors, and you can hear from them. And there are ways in the surveys that you can, you know, create logic, you can create, you can separate out the questions, and then you can do some analysis from it. Obviously, I'm I'm not turning this podcast into a session, but we can do those things to make sure that the insights that are coming out of the surveys, they are actionable for all different groups that engaged in that survey. So that's really one simple tangible way where you can bring the, all the people that are interested in your work and hear from them. You've written about Ukraine, which that blog post really resonated with me. You've written about artificial intelligence. And most recently, as the time of this recording, you wrote a pretty, I would say scathing um, article about social media. Social media is what I teach, what I talk about. And I'm always fascinated by this topic because I do think there are so many problematic, we know there are many problematic aspects to social media. So the blog post is about power, influence, and data. And what I loved about it is that you analyzed design barriers, you know, growing influence on philanthropy and the nuances to remember when using it for analytics. So can you talk about your own sort of relationship with social media and how it affects your work and how you kind of see it affecting nonprofits, you know, mission-driven movements? That's a really, really great question. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, I, let me take a step back and share why I wanted to write about social media. You know, we spend so much time on social media and for me, it's LinkedIn and a little bit of the Facebook. I'm not so active on other platforms and, LinkedIn is almost like my another office space as an independent consultant. It's also my coffee place. So I'm probably hanging out in that space most of the time. And I am, I'm I'm seeing different kind of interactions on that platform. And, and that, that goes for me too. Let me start with my, with the Mimi and then I'll talk about what I'm observing for other people. For Mimi, it's a little bit of a weird thing. You know, I mentioned at the start of this podcast, I'm a first-generation immigrant. That means I have personally, and I've, I've felt this several times, I, I struggle. I don't know about other immigrants. I can speak for myself. I I have felt a struggle to fit in a group versus stand out in a group. I have felt that struggle when I am in person with people here, right, when I moved from India, and, and sometimes even now. It's not that long a time I feel like that I'm totally understanding everything of this culture. So there's a little bit of a transition growing up in a different country and understanding a different, you know, different languages and coming here, talking in a bit of an accent. And so I struggled with this idea of fitting in versus standing out. 
that became even more harder when I had to show up myself on a virtual space. It's one thing to struggle with that idea when you are in person with someone in a room. You can struggle for a certain time. Then if you are not feeling comfortable, I can walk out of that room. You know, in a virtual space, when that's the place where my only way of me showing up is maybe it could be a video, but I'm more on the writing part of the thing. So I write. How do I make sure that I'm I'm fitting in this platform and, and I'm also standing out? So my personal relationship with social with LinkedIn, I can specifically is more around now building relationships that are starting with a place of vulnerability vulnerability with that's where i feel most comfortable and not starting out as someone saying i'm an expert on this i'm a you know titles don't matter which i kind of repeatedly say i share my space we are not doing a video today but if we would be you would be seeing my background space you would be seeing a little bit of my messy hair I'm starting out from a play every conversation of where exactly I am and not trying to change a thing. By that way, I'm honoring, I feel like I'm honoring the foundation with which I have been, you know, I have grown up. And from there, I'm taking the conversation forward by understanding the other person and taking that conversation forward. That's, that's my relationship with Lincoln. Comes to nonprofits, I'm realizing that there are several different ways that pans out in my group of connections and I talk to the people. Some of them have seen, have taken it and like, you know, oh, this and this nonprofit got this big of a gift. I think I should do something like that. There are some good influences. There are some influences that are coming because of a social pressure that so and so nonprofits do something so great. I'm not doing something. I should do something like this. And so my position in that conversation quickly becomes like a friend. Oh, no, no, you know, don't take a pause. You don't have to do everything just that that nonprofit did. You are doing great stuff. Look at your own stuff and that kind of a conversation. So I'm from those simple conversations, I'm realizing that social media has a ton of a power. It has huge power right now, especially right now when we spend so much time in front of the screens. And I wanted to analyze that power through different lens like you know the barriers when i talk about the barriers and one one of the barriers i mentioned was facebook's controversial legit name and i, I added a link in my in my uh yep mm-hmm. tell us more about that if people are not familiar with that yes of course so a couple of years ago Facebook, you had this, it's, I think it still has. So when you are creating your profile, you have to give your first name, last name, all those things. And the name has to be legit. They have some rules that make it like a rule-based thing that, you know, your name is legit or not. Now, the the names that we see, the, the European names of the names here in North America, there they are certain rules that you, it wouldn't have, say, some of those, a dash or an apostrophe, there's some things that are, that are actually legit names. There are certain indigenous names that are legit names that do not fall under the constraints and rules of these European names. And those names were instantly flagged as non-legit names. They were flagged as, okay, the, um, this is not a legit name. You have to change it. You have to make sure that you follow the rules. So there was a lot of protest around it. There was a, uh, there was a lot of I think uh, the different ways in which people kind of reacted to it and somehow that led them to change some of those rules. It's not still the perfect rules. I was just looking at it last night and it's still there are some still some difficult things to look at it, but it's getting better. That's one aspect that I want to talk about. The other aspect I wanted to talk about was these social movements that happen on 
Facebook and other platforms, those social movements have big, they grow awareness. They build, they bring people together. They qu- they can quickly bring people together, like, you know, a like from a like, a share from a share, those kind of things. But what it does not provide those social movement builders is the ability to follow up on a one-on-one basis without making it super, I would say, making, keeping it, while keeping it in like a safe space when it comes to especially the racial and ethnic movement. So, so I didn't want to go into too, too deep an example uh, of a rabbit hole for my um, newsletter, but there are some barriers for the social movement builders when, especially coming from different cultures, when they are trying to do it on the social media, is after you have built this first layer of awareness, this first layer of everybody wants to get in on that thing, and then how do you make it meaningful after something has happened, like an event has happened? How do you keep it meaningful enough? Those were some of the things that I wanted to explore in the article. Or or the, the other thing I wanted to explore was these days, these reels and short stories that Instagram offers. The 10 seconds or less idea. And yeah, that's that's so dangerous. That's so da- We are already you know, looking at our screen every day and feel like we are getting away from this human person-to-person conversation and making 10 seconds or less. Our attention span is so narrow. It's hard to fit in the bigger ideas, the context, the history into those 10 second thing, it creates unnecessary pressure. It creates people take, you know, they just take it away from their core idea. So I wanted to explore some of those things and that's how this came up. I think I suppose that's a pretty long answer for your question. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate it. This blog post is fantastic and I'll link to this one as well. And you do tie it back to data because you say, you know, really, the data available from these platforms to gauge authentic engagement is limited. And I completely agree. And that's what a lot of my clients struggle with is, well, it was a like or a comment or a share. What does that really mean? And can there be a line drawn to fundraising? Certainly with different tools, you can draw lines, you can raise money, but that engagement, like you said, and what I love also that you wrote was the quick 10 seconds or less idea you know, social media has to be digestible. It has to be fun. It has to be entertaining. Well, what if you're working on humanitarian crises? What if you're working on issues that are not digestible and fun? Like you said, you need that context, history, you know, consciousness. You need more information that you can give in 10 seconds. So I think there are ways to do it, but I thought these were really interesting questions to raise that nonprofits struggle with, but I don't think they really, they really raise them. They're just like you said, you said earlier, putting out fires and constantly on the hamster wheel of, of trying to get their mission done or, you know, trying to keep the lights on. I actually want to end talking about your podcast because, you know, it's not necessarily related to data, but I think it's really interesting. And people listening to this podcast are probably looking for new podcasts to listen to. So can you tell us about being an unbeing an immigrant? Yes, of course. And um, I think I didn't mention in my uh, in my introduction, I also have a Kindle ebook called Some Data Posts, and both of them relate. So my podcast and my work and the book, all of them, I think I'm at a place where I'm exploring the intersection of my individual identity with data with things that are happening in the world right now. So the podcast was made early or mid-2020. You know, we were a couple of months into the pandemic. Things were 
just bleak, bad, you know, strange. We were all sad. We didn't know what's going on. And so I needed something. That was the first place where I needed something to explore my story. Now, I am a firm believer that our individual stories are powerful enough to hold answers to the questions we usually seek externally. So if, we, if I would look something in my own life, I would probably find, look closely, something I experienced at the age of 20 that would still be relevant now. I would find something when I, something happened when I was growing up. And, you know, if I remember that, I would probably realize, okay, I have experienced this before. It's not a new emotion I'm experiencing. So I wanted to find a way to remember my own story. And I realized, okay, I would do a podcast. And, you know, I wanted to make it not like an entire big big book kind of a thing. So I made it into six episodes of five minutes each, really digestible kind of a format. Like I, I call them, uh, I think I call them mini pods. You could just hear them while you are walking to your fridge, taking a snack and coming back and you can have them. And the idea of those six episodes, or I think yeah, six episodes of five minutes each, the idea of there was to explore some of the bigger themes that I experienced as a first-generation immigrant. So, for example, one of the episodes was, how did I react when I first went to the Walmart? That was a <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was a whole different experience because, you know, I, I have never seen 100 different flavors of cheese. I knew cheese by one brand, which is a mool. I knew that this is one brand. I, I knew that was the cheese. I went to this big store having like three different types of onions at the start and two different types of tomatoes and then you know tons of types of milk and I remember my first time in Walmart was not kind of like oh wow there are so many I was overwhelmed I cried it right I thought I'm never going to be able to eat something in this country because I'll never be able to decide what I want to get what I should get everything has a you know this is two percent more this is five percent this is benefits of that and that's they're lacking here. And then there's oat milk, almond milk. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was overwhelming for someone who never had that much choice in these consumer products. And so I wanted to explore a little bit of that idea in one of the episodes. And then in one of the other episodes, I wanted to talk about how I feel my relationship is to a geographic place. So I have been moving so much in my entire life, even when I was in India. We used to move every two years. My dad had a job where, you know, we had to move every two years. So I wouldn't say I am new the idea of, of taking my life and starting somewhere new, but it was a different experience when I moved from India to the U.S. and U.S. to Canada. And I have been in these groups and conversations where people talk about, oh, you know, that show, do you remember that we were, used to watch in high school? And, you know, do you remember that store that was there on fifth and sixth street and you know things that they knew about that place that I didn't know about and it wasn't like one conversation so I started to explore where do I belong like in terms of place I have these number of places on my passport number of places in my story but where do I belong and I don't have a perfect answer I didn't have when I was making the podcast I don't have it now but I'm starting to realize that my relationship is not to one geographic place. It's not to one city. I think I, I belong more a little bit to that tree on the corner of the street, a little bit to that a dirty wall that was behind um, 
the bus stop and I used to get down in, in Seattle. It's a little bit in the dumpling shop that I have right now in the next to my home. They're, 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 those are the pieces where I belong. Um, and that's what I'm exploring in that podcast. So the podcast is a lot about my journey and anyone who is exploring some of these things as well. I can't wait to check it out. I love that it's a diary of sorts. It's like a journal, but it's an audio journal so that you you will remember this and you can pass it down to future generations. And it's something that you'll always look back on and reflect on. I never thought about using podcasting as like a diary or a journal, but that's, you've got my wheel spinning. That's something that I think is very, very interesting. So Mina, where can people connect with you, um, learn more about you? What's your, you said you're on LinkedIn. I am, but I want to make sure that Julia, you would be adding my LinkedIn profile, right? Because there is one more Mina and people do get confused with me and the other Mina. (laughs) Yes, I will be adding the correct one and I will add a link to your podcast and your ebook as well. Awesome. And my LinkedIn profile has the links to all the other things, my newsletter, my um, website, namastedita.org. And I'm, I'm pretty available on all the usual places, LinkedIn, email, website. Well, thank you again for being here and sharing all of your insights. And I'm sure that we'll talk again soon. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me, Julia. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode, but until then, you can find me on Instagram at juliacampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorns.